board. Um, welcome, everybody. Uh, this is the seventh and last session of the Best of Both Worlds uh, mini series at uh, Web Yeshiva. Um, I have been uh, authorized to uh, to continue in two more uh, mini series, uh, starting basically continuing next week and at this time. Um, for one uh, mini-series of five sessions, and then another one of, uh, of four sessions. Let me just uh, show you what uh, what it looks like, not this. Uh, religion and pop culture, this is the uh, Web Diva page. Um, starting with the next week, this is the 24th, I put in the, the, the topics, and there are subtopics. Well, unlike, unlike the heroes and icons, a series that we're wrapping up uh, right now. This is more like a general topic and then a few examples. So tshuva in pop culture, God. What if God was one of us? Uh, at least three examples, possibly more, but whatever we can cover of, uh, of the several examples. The Sahara, uh, Galut, uh, the exile, and finally uh, Kohelet and uh, songs uh, from the last uh, generation or two that uh, that relate to uh, to Kohelet. Anyway, that's the uh, that's the upcoming uh, religion and pop culture uh, mini series, which will be followed by Midot in pop culture for another four sessions, and all all at the same during the same time slot uh, as this one. So let's get started with uh, uh, with peanuts. The uh, before we we look at the uh, the source sheet, uh, I want to uh, share uh, a few photos of the toy store in uh, Tokyo, where my wife and I uh, visited uh, a couple of years ago, back when you were allowed to travel. Uh, this is a store in uh, in the Harajuku uh, neighborhood, or near Harajuku in uh, in Tokyo. It's called Kitty Land. It's very small by American standards. Uh, but what, what I thought was so noteworthy about the, this toy store was that it was not, so it's four or five floors, but the divisions are not by type of toy. It's not like here are the dolls and here are the board games and here are the things you ride. No, it's all brands. So just to show you, most of these, uh, the next few photos I took myself, uh, just to get a sense of, and you'll see how this is going to tie into Peanuts. Uh, here on the left is Lego, Pokemon, Marvel, and Star Wars. Uh, here is Doraemon, very popular cartoon character in Japan, uh, next to uh, Care Bears. Uh, here is Hello Kitty, next to, uh, um, I'm sorry, that, that's uh, Miffy. Uh, next to uh, the Moomins, both very popular in uh, in Europe and uh, and Japan as well. Uh, and here's uh, the Minions. Here's Sesame Street. Here's Powerpuff Girls. But Peanuts is different. How is Peanuts different? All the others have a little section of the floor of their so a dozen, a half a dozen brands uh, next to each other. Peanuts, uh, or what they call Snoopy Land, is an entire floor. So even if somebody uh, was not familiar with 
comic strips or any toys at all, any brands, and they showed up to the store, the clear message would be Snoopy, the Snoopy brand is so much bigger than the others, or at least the demand for it is so much bigger, it, it warrants its own, uh, its own floor. I thought that that was, uh, that was fascinating. I mean, I knew that there were a lot of Peanuts products, um, and there have been since the 1960s, but I didn't realize just how much bigger it is than all the other brands. Uh, also in Tokyo, we didn't get to, uh, to go uh, to it, but the, uh, uh, the Peanuts uh, Museum. And this is just a view of the uh, the outside. They apparently have on the wall a bunch of uh, the comic strips. Uh, before we look at the source sheet, I want to share with you some of the books that I've uh, that I've read on uh, on peanuts. Of course, we've all read some uh, peanuts collections. Um, there are two that are one or two that are famous. They're little cute books. Lots of people have them. Happiness is a warm puppy, and uh, love is walking uh, hand in hand. Those are both from the uh, the 1960s, and they're cute. As as I'm going to to uh, argue, they're not so typical. They don't really represent the uh, uh, the stories of the of the comic strip. But okay, fine. Uh, this one is unusual. In fact, I, I have I have a copy uh, of this book myself. And the Beagles and the Bunnies shall lie down together. The theology in Peanuts by not by somebody who's trying to explain religion in the Peanuts, like uh, most famously the Gospel, the Gospel According to Peanuts by uh, Rev. Reverend Robert Short. Uh, no, but this is, the author of this one is Charles Schultz, and there, there's no text in it other than the comic strips, the comic strips themselves. It's just, it's a little book, but it's a little book of, of, of uh, religion and uh, ideas, uh, religious ideas in... Uh, uh, in uh, in this book, I'm sorry. Someone saying something? Okay. Um, the uh, I thought that was uh, uh, that was fascinating. Uh, moving right along. Uh, Happy birthday, Charlie Brown, uh, by Lee Mendelson, who was very involved in the TV TV specials. This is some Peanuts cartoons, but also about some of the history in early early history of the uh, of the comic strip and the TV specials. We won't be focusing on the TV specials uh, in this uh, session. Uh, there's there's a, a lot to say about it, how how successful they were, but they're also a little bit different from the comic strip. Anyway, so this was uh, this book is from uh, 1979. The, this collection you don't look 35, Charlie Brown. Charles Schultz is the only collection of the many, many collections of, of comic strips. This is the only one in which Charles Schultz put in little comments here and there, and we'll be looking at, at one or two of them, very uh, revealing stuff. Um, this, I just finished reading it today, uh, this is volume one of a 26-volume set that was published between 2004 and j just a few years ago. Uh, by Fantagraphics, these are the, this is the definitive collection. So the first two years of the comic strip, 1950 to 1952, um, is volume one. In case anybody uh, wants to uh, to buy them, you'll probably have to buy them. They're, they're sold as sets of two. Uh, and uh, this is the complaint in case you're wondering, wait, wasn't Peanuts for like 50 years, so shouldn't it be 25 volumes? That's true. It's 25 volumes, and then an extra volume of uh, additional comics and uh, drawings that uh, 
that Charles uh, Schultz did. Uh, there are a couple of collections that I used uh, that were just published in the last few years that are tributes to Peanuts and, uh, and Charles Schultz. One of them is this one, uh, Peanuts, a tribute to Charles M. Schultz. Over 40 artists celebrate the work of Charles M. Schultz. Some excellent, excellent stuff here in a wide variety of uh, cartoon styles. It's done by artists. Uh, we have a quote or two from, from them because each artist was asked to write a little something as well. This is the what, we, what you're, we're seeing now is the hardcover uh, picture, and now here's the, the paperback cover. In both cases, you see the uh, two different versions of the same uh, of the either Charles Brown or, and uh, or, or Snoopy. The again the the one from Charles Schultz, and then how how a, a different artist would have uh, presented it. And finally, the Peanuts Papers. This book is, as you'll see, is a major source for. Um, the material that I've uh, collected here, uh, it, it only came out in 2019, and I'm very glad that it did because I'm not sure how I, I'm not sure what this class would would have looked like without it. Writers and cartoonists on Charlie Brown, Snoopy and the Gang, and the Meaning of Life. Um, a lot of interesting, thought-provoking stuff in all different aspects of, uh, of Peanuts, including this an entire essay just on the music of the. Um, of the uh, TV specials, uh, Vince Guaraldi, and how that fits into the history of jazz. That's just one, one essay. It's uh, really, really good stuff. Anyway, um, so let's go back to, uh, uh, to the source sheet. I call this the greatness of, of peanuts. There's a little quote here from, uh, uh, from Bill Watterson. Uh, Mark is holding up the, uh, the complete peanuts. That's, uh, uh, that's one of the later volumes, right? It's note 55 to 56, and that's pig pen. Pig pen's on the cover. Oh, there you go. Thank you. So each each cover of the 26 volumes, each cover features one one person's face. Uh, this is uh, anyway. It it's. I guess this is for completists. Uh, I see Brian asked, "Is this the, the full Talmud on peanuts?" Uh, it's it's more like the. Uh, um, well, it's not really Art Scroll or Corin because there's no there's no commentary. Well, there's an essay at the beginning and there's an essay at, at the end. But uh this is very different these collections are very different from the um the smaller ones that, that we're all used to, which are much more uh much more limited. Anyway, uh there are so there, we're talking about a huge amount of material. So we're going to talk about a few aspects of it, but I first want to focus on something that I, I only really thought about because of uh, some of the people reflecting on it. The uh, the fact that Charles Schultz single-handedly put out a comic strip day after day after day for almost 50 years until until more or less uh, when he died. That's 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 quite astounding. Uh, there, it's basically, if you want, even if you don't like the comic strip itself, uh, it's basically it's unheard of for anybody to do anything remotely like that. Um, the uh, there's this is not exactly a quote from Chazal. This is a pseudo medrash. This is an a, a a text that was apparently written in the Middle Ages, but 
it's written in the style of a midrash. It appears in source number one. It appears in the introduction to the Ein Yaakov. Ein Yaakov is a collection of the Agadot, the non-alachic material of the Gemara. But the uh, the author of this hakdama of this introduction uh, of the author of Ein Yaakov, the one who put it together, and the, the Ein Yaakov Eun Yaakov commentary. In his introduction, he says, "I found this medrash. I don't know where it's from." Okay, and you could tell from the fact that one of the rabbis is Rabbi Ploni. That's like Rabbi so and so. Okay, this is not a real medrash, but it doesn't matter. It's a it's a fascinating idea. If you haven't heard this before, you will. Rabbis love to quote this. Okay, it's basically it's a variation on the famous medrash of rabbis from the Gemara arguing about which is the most important principle in the Torah. The most famous example is Rabbi Akiva says the uh, love your neighbor as yourself is the most important principle in the Torah. And in the in the real medrash, the rabbi who argues with him says no. The most important principle in the Torah is. Uh, these are the generations of, of, of Adam. God created humanity in the image of, of God. So they're talking about uh, the importance of Jews, the importance of non-Jews. In this version, it's uh, the first opinion is Shema Yisrael, meaning serving God. That's the most important general rule, um, the, mo- the most important verse in the Torah. The second opinion says, no, the most important verse is love your neighbor as yourself. And then the third opinion, the one that's, out of nowhere, says, no, the most important verse in the Torah is you should bring the first lamb in the morning and bring the second lamb in the afternoon. What? What is that talking about? It's the Karban Tamid. The, uh, uh, the daily sacrifice, Tamid literally uh, means, means always, but in this case it means daily, day in, day out. So how can this be such an important principle? So rabbis who like to quote this, to be honest, fake Medrash, rabbis who like to quote this say, you know what? There's all types out there. But what we can agree on is that doing something good day after day after day without fail, that there's an intrinsic value in that. And then rabbi will tie it into the Parsha or whatever, uh, whatever he wants uh, to do with it. And uh, until now, until I thought, apply this to, to Peanuts, I uh, associated it with this uh, Dvar Torah uh, from uh, 1997 by Rabbi Aaron Parry. He used to be the rabbi of the young Israel of Beverly Hills. Uh, he's apparently in Los Angeles. He's known as the guy who, a few days every baseball season for the last 20 years, he, he has a kosher food stand at, at Dodger Stadium. Anyway, so he wrote this article called The Iron Man of the Talmud, referring to Cal Ripken Jr., who had not yet retired uh, by that point, uh, the uh, baseball player who, it turns out he was also an all-star player and one of the best shortstops and third baseman in baseball history, but people called him the Iron Man because he showed up to every game over and over and over again. So what they called the Iron Man record, most consecutive games played. It ended up, by the time he retired, it was 2,632 games over 17 years. And the previous record had been 2,130, uh, Lou Gehrig, you know, more than 50 years uh, uh, before that. So Rabbi Parry refers to this and says that Daf Yomi is like that. If you can do two sides of a page of Gemara every day, day in, day out, that's, that's, that's really impressive. So I thought that was an interesting comparison. But then when I was researching this class, I saw that people have, a few people praising uh, Peanuts said, you know what Charles Schultz did was, was in that category. And I look at source number, uh, 
Number three, uh, peanuts just, you know, we know this stuff, but just some numbers. Peanuts was carried by more than 2,600 newspapers in 75 countries and read by 300 million people. It'd uh, been going for almost five decades, and Robert Thompson, who's the uh, professor who gets quoted uh, whenever any journalist needs anything, any quote about pop culture, they ask him, arguably the longest story told by a single artist in human history. Well, I guess you can argue about that, but by a single artist. There are a lot of comic strips that have continued for many years, but of course they, they're, they're written by a team of people, or at least you know, the, the, uh, the people took over from the original cartoonist. Charles Schultz put in his contract that nobody's taking over from him after he retires. The way that source number four, Roger Langridge, put it in, in the, this, uh, the artist's tribute book, for me, he says, the single greatest thing about Peanuts, the towering inspirational central fact of its, of its existence, is the fact that it was all the work of one cartoonist. Every line of dialogue, every hand-drawn letter came out of one brain, committed to paper by one hand for 50 years. In a world where huge media corporations build intellectual properties by focus group and committee, with all sorts of commercial pressures, it's staggering that Charles Schultz created not just that he did it every day, but that was also one of the most beloved and, as I noticed in Tokyo, one of the most commercially successful strips of all time, day after day after day. That 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 can be compared to. The, the Iron Man of baseball, or the, the person who does Daf Yomi day after day after day. As the way that uh, source number five, one more variation on this, uh, in the Peanuts papers, Professor uh, Ivan Brunetti, who's a, a professor of design at Columbia College, uh, Chicago, and has cartoons in The New Yorker, he pointed out that Charles Schultz continued, even through the debilitating pain, he had essential tremor that caused the lines to get shaky in the strip's latter, latter years. Meaning, the last couple of decades, it, he had trouble, and he, he kept going. What would have readily destroyed another artist was transformed by Schultz into the aesthetic of the strip. He says, speaking as, a, as, a, as an artist, I can attest that giving up on drawing is the easiest thing in the world to do. Schultz must have been a rock made of 100% willpower. Uh, that's, that's pretty impressive. And that stands on its own, separate from whether you like or don't like the comic strip. Uh, that's that's the first point that uh, uh, that I wanted to make. The uh, oh, actually, let me let me just sh uh, share the uh, just just to put in perspective the last the last extra. Uh, uh, this is from uh, February thirteenth, uh, uh, two thousand. This is Charles Schultz's uh, farewell letter. Uh, instead of a comic strip, um, and, uh, and he's apologizing. He can't keep the schedule. He's announcing his retirement, um, and a few, a few examples here. What he didn't say, but was the people close to him already knew, was that he only announced his retirement because he knew that he was dying. And in fact, Charles Schultz died just a few hours before this last comic strip appeared. So, uh, if he he had said in an earlier interview that he's not planning to retire uh, anytime soon, he, you know he didn't retire. It was that he he couldn't he couldn't do it anymore, and nobody else is going to do it anymore. Of course, because Peanuts is so successful, uh, the um, uh, it's it keeps going. 
they uh, they're still they're still repeating. They have 50 years of comic strips to uh, to repeat, um, but uh, there are no new uh, Peanuts uh, cartoons. I see that Mark commented. Uh, Bill Watterson and, and Gary Larson are also uh, fiercely independent, and yes, and they are. And the the fact that you're able to just walk away, the two of them were able to just walk away from Dalvin Hobbs in the Far Side are. Um, Quite, uh, quite remarkable. Bill Watterson is actually, in some ways, the other extreme from uh, Charles Schultz because from the beginning of Calvin and Hobbes, that one decade, 85 to 95 of, of Calvin and Hobbes, um, he did not want any product. He didn't license uh, anything. He wanted to be a pure artistic thing. And um, as opposed to Charles Schultz, who, as early as the, as the, the 1960s, said, yeah, sure, let, let's market some stuff. And it became this gargantuan, uh, I think it's this, the Peanuts brand is worth somewhere between $1 and $2 billion a year now, 20 years after Charles uh, Schultz passed away. Anyway, let's move on to the, uh, to the football joke and the media of naivete. The football joke done many times in, uh, in the comic strip is that, as you know, uh, Lucy asks uh, Charlie Brown, "You want to want to kick the? I'll hold the football and, and you uh, you kick it." And and uh, he knows that she's going to pull it away, but he does it. He goes through with it anyway, and each time he fails in a slightly different way. So Chuck Klosterman, a journalist who wrote and an author of eleven books, um, including one that was on the source sheet in the Matrix class, the book called "Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs." Um, in his essay in the Peanuts Papers, he comments on this. He says, Charlie Brown knows he's doomed, but a little part of his mind, talking about this, the football uh, gag, a little part of his mind always suggests, maybe not this time. That glimmer of hope is his Achilles heel. And it's also the attribute that makes him so imminently relatable. The joke is not that Charlie Brown is hopeless, which he is. The joke is that Charlie Brown knows he's hopeless, but he doesn't trust the infallibility of his own insecurity. If he's always wrong about everything, perhaps he's wrong about this too. So that's how you can do a variation, variation after variation, the same joke. Isn't it a terrible thing? Why, why, is, there, why is this an, an appealing joke? Because there's something, there's something admirable uh, deep down about the fact that Charlie Brown continues to, to go through with it. As formulated by, um, uh, right, see from uh, Mark, Charlie Brown also had faith that the tree would not eat his kite. Thank you. Variation on, on this. So as formulated in source number seven, Dr. Peter Kramer in the Peanuts Papers, he is an emeritus professor of psychiatry at, at Brown University, and his books include Listening to Prozac. So He's the one, if anybody's interested in, in the in Lucy psych, psychiatry, you know, the doctor is in. He has an essay mostly about that and how it relates to psychiatry in America. The football joke is about ignoring experience. Charlie Brown is trusting to a fault or a, or a virtue. He prefers to trust, however often his, trust, his faith is betrayed. Giving fellow humans the benefit of the doubt is a fine, if painful way to live. Don't, don't, we cry to Charlie Brown. But then we're glad that he does. If betrayal is the way of the world, so how should a person live? Meaning, do you really want to become the, the cynical kind of person who knows that he's going to be betrayed and therefore he doesn't trust anybody? 
I understand that that midah, but that's a terrible midah to have walking through through left like that. And that's why I thought that a Torah parallel to this to this concept, the value of Charlie Brown's midah, uh, his character trait of naivete, was written up in the short of our Torah, source number eight, by Rav Shlomo Vilk. He is the uh, the Rosh Hashiva of Yeshivat Machanayim, uh, connected part of Or Torah Stone. It's between. Uh, Ephrat and Megdaoz in the former location of Yeshiva Hamivtar, where I studied. I was in the Kolel, and we lived, and we, uh, my wife and I lived in a caravan for five years. Anyway, the location is still there. It's a different Yeshiva. So he wrote in a Dvar Torah's files, just going to uh, translate it uh, uh, on the spot. For many years, I've explained to my children that I hope that they will be friarim. This is one of these uh, modern Hebrew words. A friar is a sucker, somebody who gets taken advantage of. And a major part of Israeli culture is the worst thing is to be a friar. The worst thing is to have somebody take advantage of you. There's a lot to say about this, but I like the way that Rabbi uh, Vilk says that he's, he tells his kids he hopes that they will be this, that they should know to give up on things. They should not look for the, uh, the best, possibly dirty deals. They shouldn't try to make easy money. They should be and he quotes the Gemara, Baishanim Rachmanim Gomlei Chasadim, the uh, people who are, uh, have a sense of shame, a sense of pity, uh, a sense of, of, of kindness, which the Gemara says is, these are character traits of the Jewish people. He's saying basically that's the opposite of being a friar. We should be like descended, the, descended from Avram. He says these three character traits, that's what it means to be a friar. That is, okay, you need to, sometimes you need to be assertive, but you should know that it's Better to live a life of being a friar, somebody who works really hard, stands online, and basically you wait your turn. You don't run to the front of the, of the line because you can. You wait your turn, and you don't worry. You don't keep looking at what other people are getting. Being a friar is not going to kill you. Not only that, but it's a great thing, and, and people will remember you, remember you for the better. I thought that was such an interesting Countercultural uh, uh, critique of of Israeli culture coming from uh, from an Israeli, and and I think that that sheds light on what's so what's so appealing about the naivete of of Charlie Brown as is expressed in the uh, the football joke and the uh, uh, the kite joke. Charles Schultz, I mentioned earlier, he had. Oh, I'm sorry. I need to. Uh, I need to uh, share at least one one of the uh, uh, of the football jokes. Okay, here we go. Um, this is this is from uh, uh, September uh, 1957. Charlie um, Brown refuses, and and Lucy says, "I'm a changed person. Look, isn't this a face you can trust?" And then he goes to the same thing. Wump, and. She, she concludes, I admire you, Charlie Brown. You have such faith in human nature. So it doesn't always work this way, but this, this particular comic strip fits very well with the, uh, the point that, uh, that the last couple of sources just, uh, just made. The next few sources uh, talk about the, uh, the unrequited love in the comic strip, and this is from none other than Charles Schultz himself. In uh, starting with the football uh, joke, but uh, uh, c- uh, continuing in, in this book that I mentioned before, you don't look 35, Charlie Brown, look at source number nine. Why does 
Lucy pull away the football every time Charlie Brown comes running up to kick in? Why does he let himself be fooled so often? Oh, yeah, okay, she has a mean streak, he has a trusting personality, but he says, skipping a little bit, okay, uh, we have to let her triumph. People have consistently asked Charles Schultz over the years, are you ever going to let Charlie Brown kick the football? And he said, no, no, we can't. To be consistent, we have to let her triumph. For all the loves in the comic strip are unrequited. All the baseball games are lost. All the test scores are D minuses. The great pumpkin never comes. And the football is always pulled away. So this is the cartoonist himself, who in general tried to avoid commenting on the strip. He didn't do a lot of explanation. You know, here it is, take it or leave it. But this was, he recognized that there's something, there's a theme here over the course of all this time. And in the same book, a different page, he says, I seem to be fascinated by unrequited love, if not obsessed by it. Sally loves Linus, but Linus can't stand her. Lucy loves Schroeder, but Schroeder can't stand her. Charlie Brown loves the red-headed girl, but doesn't even dare to go near her. There's something funny about unrequited love. I suppose it's because we can all identify with it. Uh, or at least Charles Schultz can identify with it. But the idea is that why did this, this aspect of the strip, which comes up not just in the football, well, not the football, that's uh, that tying, I'm going back to source number nine, but but why isn't there anybody who's who's happy in love in, uh, in Charlie Brown? Because that would, it wouldn't fit. It wouldn't fit with the general theme. And what's the general theme? Charles Schultz did not say this explicitly, but a bunch of people noted it in the Peanuts papers. The world of Peanuts is dark and bleak. As is formulated here in source number 11 by um, Evan Dorkin, who is a, a comics artist who's won uh, uh, six Eisner Awards. I think Peanuts was the darkest strip to ever appear in the Sunday Funnies. And I think this darkness was present from the very beginning. What was the very beginning? Going to briefly share the very, 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 very first Peanuts. Before, for the first two years, it was very different from the way it appeared later. The kids looked different a lot of ways, but this is comic strip number one. The people in the comic strip, besides Charlie Brown, are Shermie and Patty, who were later dropped or marginalized. Well, here comes old Charlie Brown. Good old Charlie Brown. Yes, sir. Good old Charlie Brown. How I hate him. And it's like, like somebody just, if not literally, punched Charlie Brown in the face, although the second comic strip, somebody actually does get punched in the face. Like, that's, that's a comic strip for kids? Well, that's what, Charles, that's what Charles Schultz wanted to say. Look at the way that Evan Dorkin presents it. The first famous Peanuts strip. Oh, wait, did I switch back? Uh, wait, why am I not getting the... Uh, uh, wait a minute. I'm not getting the annotation. Wait, do you see the source sheet? You do. Okay, fine. I'm just uh, not sure why the uh, uh, annotation's not working. Um, I think Peanuts was the darkest strip to ever appear in the Sunday Funnies. Right. Shermie, it ends with a seething Shermie expressing his utter hatred for Charlie Brown. The cute setup pays off with an unexpected outburst of negative emotion, slapping the reader upside the head like one of Lucy's roundhouse punches. Lucy wasn't even in this comic strip at this point. She didn't even appear until the uh, a year... Uh, 
a year and a half in, and she appeared as a baby, and she gradually aged, but for the first several several months, she was just a little kid. No, but the hatred, the hatred and, and the negativity that was there even before Lucy. Schultz was willing to go there, all the way down there, to dark places, and make us laugh while he explored them. I mean, come on, wait, I need to uh, change the pages here. Wait just a minute. Why am I, I, I lost the... Uh, um, What's it called? Control here. Just a minute. Okay. Um, who gives it? What kind of person gives a kid a rock on Halloween? Can you see uh, the top of the page? Uh, what kind of person thinks up such a bizarre, here we go, such a bizarre, spiteful, mean-spirited gag like that? It's moments like that where Peanuts veers from a straight-up gag strip, you know, like jokes, into Kafka territory. And it's a mark of Schultz's genius that he was able to sugarcoat so many bitter pills and make the entire world happily swallow them. The fact that this uh, source, Evan Dorkin, refers to Kafka is so telling because in source number 10, sorry, number 12, one of the other uh, writers in, uh, in the, the Peanuts papers, uh, David uh, Owen, Professor of English at the University of uh, Southern California, used to be the book editor of the of the, uh, of the L.A. Times. He refers to good old Gregor Brown. Good old Gregor Brown is from my favorite book. Well, it's certainly one of my favorite books. I have it right here, Masterpiece Comics uh, by R. Sikoriak, in which uh, we don't have time to go through it now, but a bunch of classic novels. Or, or, or plays, stories, etc. Not parodies of, but illustrated in the style of a famous comic book or comic strip. Shedding light, not done randomly, but shedding light on each one. So the example here, is, this is just two pages. R.C. Koryak is, if not the world's expert, certainly one of the world's experts at copying the styles of other artists perfectly. Okay? Good old Gregor Brown, Gregor Samsa, of course, is the main character of uh, The Metamorphosis, a uh, dark story, surreal story by, uh, by Franz Kafka, in which the main character wakes up one morning to discover he's been turned into a bug. No explanation, and then he has to deal with the situation, and his, he, his family can't handle it, and his boss uh, comes to, to yell at him, and, uh, and he, he, doesn't really, he doesn't survive. But and it, you can read on all sorts of different levels. But what if Charles Schultz had illustrated the Metamorphosis? This is what it would look like. Each set of of uh, uh, each comic strip is presented with the kind of uh, punchline at the end of a day of peanuts. Collectively, these I'm switching to the next page. These uh, four or five, uh, no, uh, no, eight or nine. Yes. Uh, these nine comic strips fr tell the story of the metamorphosis from uh, beginning to end, and it ends with uh, the maid who discovers that the bug has died. The maid, of course, is played by, uh, by Snoopy. Snoopy ends happiness as a pest-free home. Um, and, of course, earlier there are references, Gregor, your blockhead. Fascinating because it sheds light on Kafka and Charlie Brown at the same time. Uh, very, uh, very, very unusual. I want to just show you one more comic strip, which will relate to something that's coming up. Charlie Brown gets rained on. Rain, he looks up, he says nothing, it, it rains harder and harder, and finally, it always rains on the unloved. 
Uh, would you call that funny? I wouldn't call that funny. As Adam Gopnik puts it, um, Peanuts is black humor before it's benign humor. Inmate's predicament is closer to Chekhov, uh, not the guy from Star Trek, the uh, the playwright, uh, closer to Chekhov than it is to Gasoline uh, Alley, more like Beckett than Beale Bailey. And an example that he gives of how bleak it is is the fact that the parents and grown-ups never appear. Okay, so Charles Schultz explained that he wasn't so he wasn't so ha- uh, clear on uh, he wanted to focus on the children. He wasn't he didn't describe this as a bleak thing, but Adam Gopnik presents it as this ends up contributing to the darkness. Parents are rarely heard or never seen. The kids don't inhabit a more innocent world. They inhabit the recognizable grown-up world of thwarted ambition. Only without even the capacity to take the kind of actions that adults can take to bring their ambitions into at least an illusory compact with their circumstances. Like an adult who's, who hates their job, at least theoretically can quit their job. They hate the where they live, at least theoretically they can move. Kids can't do that. Kids at least can, can have a, possibly a loving relationship with their parents, but you don't see that. You only see in Peanuts, you only see the relationships among the kids, and there's no, there's no parental or family love at all. So it turns out that Charles Schultz did comment at some point, maybe I have the cruelest strip uh, going. Fascinating article uh, by Bruce Handy, in which uh, this appears. Uh, I, I forgot to mention, Adam Gopnik has been writing for the New Yorkers uh, since uh, 1986. Uh, Bruce Handy is another New Yorker person. He's contributed humor pieces uh, for there. He wrote for Saturday Night Live for one season. But most importantly, Bruce Handy wrote an excellent book about children's books. It's called Wild Things, The Joy of Reading Children's Literature as an Adult. It came out before the Peanuts Papers. I recommend both. I recommend both reading children's literature as an adult and Bruce Handy's book about uh, doing so. Listen to what uh, Bruce Handy says about, uh, about Peanuts. A Peanuts narrative is the opposite of a fairy tale. In a fairy tale, good generally wins out. Dragons get slain, witches are shoved in ovens, simpletons win fortunes. But in Schultz, no one gets what they want, like we said before, unrequited love. Everyone is thwarted, not just in love, but also in the baseball field, in the classroom, or where Snoopy is concerned, in the skies above World War I battlefields. Happiness is a warm puppy, notwithstanding, which is charming, but it's a cash-in. And I would argue it's, it's not canon, says, uh, says Bruce Handy. So separate from that, the more quintessential Peanuts catchphrases are, rats, good grief, I can't believe it, and "og." Justice is almost as beside the point in Schultz's realism. He grinds his characters down as if they were players in a children's theater adaptation of Camus or Sartre or Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson, the blues player. He's the one about whom there's the urban legend that maybe he, he must have sold his soul to the devil in order to get uh, that kind of, uh, of music. And then Bruce Handy quotes the comic tri- strip we just saw from 1958. Charlie Brown sitting alone. Raindrops. Rain is torrential. It always rains on the unloved. Is Schultz even trying to be funny? Not really. Winsomely depressing. So what do kids take away from all this bleakness? In other words, in light of all this, why is Peanuts a beloved comic strip? Why is it that people are willing to spend billions of dollars to buy stuff 
that's marketed with uh, uh, with the, with the Peanuts brand. So Bruce Handy says, speaking for himself as a kid, Charlie Brown's relentless suffering comforted me. Worst case scenario, I felt bad for Charlie Brown, but I confess I didn't feel that bad for him. No, no more than I did for a less soulful, less worthy cartoon losers, Wiley Coyote, Elmer Fudd, even that shill, the Tricks Rabbit, you know, from the commercials. Uh, they take away his cereal. Tricks are for kids. Um, he says, what I took away from Schultz is that life's hard. People are difficult at best, unfathomable at worst. Justice is a foreign tongue. Happiness can vaporize in a thin gap between a third and fourth panel. And the best response to all that is to laugh and keep moving, always ready to duck. In other words, Charlie Brown, as he doesn't win, but he keeps going. And the fact that he and everybody else in the strip who loses or is unrequited in, what, unrequited in whatever way, the fact that they keep going, that's something that we can all relate to, that we can all be aspired by. And this is not exactly the same thing as the following Gemara, but it reminds me of the following Gemara. Source number 15, you know, this week of Hanukkah, so everybody likes to quote the debate between Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai about how to light the Hanukkah candles. Well, there's another debate uh, between them. They argued for two and a half years whether it's better for a person to be born, to be created at all, or not. It doesn't say Beit Shammai argued better not to be born, but that seems to go along with their general attitude. Um, and they ended up taking a vote, as opposed to the usual thing in which they leave it as an argument, and then we, we follow Beit Hillel. There's nothing to follow here. It's a philosophical debate, but still. Bottom line is they voted. And guess what? Better for a person, or at least easier for a person, that's a more accurate translation, it's easier for a person to not be created than to be created. Everybody agreed. You know what? Life is hard. Really, it's better not to be born at all. But, here's the ray of hope, the Gemara ends on, but Achshav Shenivra, now that you have been created, well, look into your deeds. In other words, examine yourself and make, if you're here anyway, you might as well do your best to do the right thing. Really, we don't have to pretend that this is the best of all possible worlds. It's a, life is hard. But, you were not consulted as to whether to be born or not. You're here anyway. You're here anyway. Just do the best you can. Just keep going. And that, it seems to me, uh, fits very well with the, uh, uh, the theme that we just said from, uh, from Charlie Brown. Um, and on a national level, this fits with the idea of survival. Survival, I want to con compare and contrast Jewish strategies and peanuts strategies. A famous essay by Professor uh, Simon Ravidowitz, Israel, the Ever-Dying People, originally from 1948 and then was written up, translated into English in 1967, where he argues that Jews have always been deathly afraid of being wiped out, being annihilated. Um, and, and he says, he suggests, I'm tempted to think that this fear of cessation, fear of this is it, this is the last generation of Jews, we can't continue... This was a kind uh, of, um, one second, Israel has indulged so much in the fear of its end, Israel meaning the Jewish people, that its constant vision of the end helped it to overcome every crisis, to emerge from every threatening end as a living unit. 
So no catastrophe could ever take this end-fearing people by surprise. In other words, it's a famous thing that Jews have survived against all odds over the centuries. So he suggests that maybe part of it, I mean, a religious person would say part of it is God uh, being uh, out there and uh, and protecting us. But um, possibly in addition to that, it's a survival strategy to be constantly afraid that you're not going to survive. That, can, he suggests, that has allowed Jews to uh, to survive. A variation on this is from the uh, the founder of uh, of cultural Zionism, Achad Ha'am, in his in his weird essay, Moses, weird, it's very different from the traditional uh, view of, uh, of Moshe Rabbeinu. The question has been much debated whether the Jewish spirit is optimism or pessimism. All such discussion is futile. The Jew is both optimist and pessimist, but his pessimism has reference to the present and his optimism is to the future. Meaning, as, as I've heard this ex- explained, we're very optimistic about the future. There will be a Mashiach. There will be Tcheramitim. The world is going to get better. There is a better world coming up in this world, and there's an even better world coming up after we die. That's great optimism for the future. But for right here and now, expect the worst. Right here and now, we're not expecting Mashiach. We hope for Mashiach. Every day we wait for Mashiach. But as we saw, remember a few weeks ago in the Matrix class, the Rambam says, stop getting caught up in when you think Mashiach is going to come. When Mashiach comes, that will be great. We, ho- we wait every day. But in the meantime, just stop thinking about it. It's not, we don't focus on that. Well, rather, what do we focus on? We focus on the day-to-day living. That's a type of pessimism. Whereas, this is not really a Jewish uh, proverb, but a paraphrase of a line from a, an English play from several hundred years ago. Hope for the best but expect the worst. If you've heard that line before, that's because uh, uh, there's a song of that name, uh, Hope for the Best, Expect the Worst, uh, at the beginning of the 1970 film, The Twelve Chairs. Uh, the Twelve Chairs have been made into a movie, uh, Russian story, made into a movie a bunch of times, but this is the Mel Brooks version. And Mel Brooks, you can find it on, uh, on YouTube, Mel Brooks wrote this song, super happy tune, depressing lyrics. Hope for the best, expect the worst. So that happens to fit with what Achad Ha'am uh, said here. That is a, a Jewish survival strategy. We hope that things will come out great, especially in the future. But in the meantime, we're expecting it to be, to be pretty awful. In contrast, let's look at some survival strategies in the Peanuts uh, comic strip, an essay by Sarah Boxer, um, who is, uh, we saw her earlier, um, she used to be a, uh, used to write for the New York Times. She used to be an editor of the New York Times Book Review. I, I think her essay is either the best or one of the best in uh, in the Peanuts uh, papers. All of the characters were survivors, not just Charlie Brown, as we said. They just had different strategies for survival. Linus knew he could take his blows philosophically as long as he had a security blanket nearby. I'm skipping a bit in the interest of time. Lucy dishing out bad and unsympathetic advice. They, uh, that was her uh, survival uh, strategy by uh, by telling everybody else what to do, presenting herself as if she is a uh, a uh, an expert. In fact, let's uh, let's just look at that uh, comic strip right now. Uh, uh, 1959. Charlie Brown says, "I have deep feelings of depression. What can I do about this?" And Lucy says, "Snap out of it." 
Five cents, please. That's that's her uh, uh, psychiatric. Uh, uh, one more that uh, that fit, fits with something else we're gonna hopefully we'll get to shortly. Look at that crazy dog that's from 1956. I sure wish I could be that happy all the time. That's Charlie Brown. And Lucy says, not me. It's too hard to feel sorry for yourself when you're happy, which is perhaps uh, very, uh, uh, very uh, telling uh, remark for how Schroeder was his survival strategy. Artistic retreat, ignoring the world to pursue one's dream. And Snoopy's coping philosophy was even more antisocial. Since no one will ever see you the way you see yourself, you might as well build your, your world around fantasy, like Walter Mitty. Okay? And Sarah Boxer concludes this part of her essay, those characters who could not be summed up with both a social strategy and a recognizable attribute became bit players or fell by the wayside. Um, so each one has their survival strategy. The most obvious one, of course, is, uh, is Charlie Brown, who continues no matter what. Uh, the cartoonist Tom Tamara calls him a Sisyphus, the, the guy in the, in, the, in, in the myths who has to roll the, uh, he, his condemned to roll the, uh, the rock up, to the mount, uh, up the mountain, and it keeps rolling down. And this is where uh, the quote from Charles Schultz, will, will, you, will you let Charlie Brown make contact with the football? Oh, no, definitely not. That would be a terrible disservice to him after nearly half a century, meaning it would take away from what's so great about him that his way is to keep on keeping on with tangled kite, losing baseball team day after day. On a more positive note, Bruce Handy uh, concludes his essay, if, if I were asked to pick the character most likely to find happiness if, if he or she ever grew up, I wouldn't hesitate to pick Charlie Brown he feels his failures deeply, he suffers profoundly, profoundly, and yet he remains ever willing to take another run of kicking the football, or trying to get his, his kite uh, aloft. I thought that was a fascinating uh, idea, and since we're running out of time, um, I want to, uh, I'll, just, I'll just summarize in source number 22, um, that in between the 50s and the 70s, something happened to Peanuts. By 1975, Snoopy had replaced Charlie Brown as the center of the strip. For instance, in parts of Europe, Peanuts came to be licensed as Snoopy. Well, Charles Schultz never liked the title Peanuts in the first place. He didn't even pick it. And in Tokyo, what we said before, the floor of the Toy Store Kitty Land devoted to Peanuts, they call that Snoopy Town. Some people detested the new Snoopy, and they blamed him for what they viewed as a decline of peanuts. But, as Chuck Klosterman points out, no, that's not correct. He says, Snoopy, yes, it's true, Snoopy became a focus, but Snoopy is not the emotional vortex of peanuts. That's just wrong. The linchpin to peanuts will always be Charlie Brown, because Charlie Brown effortlessly embodies what peanuts truly is, an introduction to adult problems explained by children, which is a variation of what, what we, we saw before, a very uh, a dark way of looking at the world, which normally we don't, adults don't imagine that, that children have. It's a kind of weird combination of adult ideas, adult character traits in a world in which there are uh, no adults. Um, but and on, on a, a variation of this kind of ending on a positive note, uh, and then we'll switch to Rabbi Tversky, uh, 
Hillary Fitzgerald uh, uh, Campbell, uh, who is a uh, another New Yorker cartoonist and a comedian, uh, she, in her essay in the Peanuts Papers, she says maybe it's because I I read so much Peanuts as a kid, but I find the balancing act between the fountain of hope and the forecast of disappointment to be the essence of life, which is another way of saying that you need both Snoopy and Charlie Brown. Snoopy is the, the upbeat one, and Charlie Brown, of course, is the one who's disappointed all the time, but if it were, she's arguing that if it were just Charlie Brown, it would be too out of whack. So there's that, keep, that, that balance, not just children and adults, but the hope versus disappointment, and the fact that millions of people, hundreds of millions of people, continue to like this and buy merchandise based on it shows that Charles Schultz got something right, and these, this, this might be what he got right. And now let's shift to the cartoonist uh, and the uh, and the rabbi. Uh, let me just uh, uh, share with you the uh, pictures before we look at the uh, uh, content. Uh, right. So uh, Rabbi Swirsky is going to quote this. Here's here's uh, from 1959. Linus is making a sandcastle, very very elaborate. It starts drizzling. It starts raining. The downpour. The castle is gone. And what does Linus say? There's a lesson to be learned here somewhere, but I don't know what it is. You'll see shortly what this has to do with anything. Rabbi Abraham Tversky, Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky, an amazing role model, who I think he just turned 90, he combined in his, has combined in his own life chassidut and psychiatry and musr and 12-step recovery from addiction. I highly recommend the article uh, about Rabbi Tversky that I uploaded as supplementary material. Um, Rabbi Tversky wrote four books, has published four books, using, with permission, using Peanuts cartoons to illustrate ideas about psychology, ideas about people, um, and um, have all of them here. Uh, when Did the Good Things Start? That was his, his uh, first book on the topic. Waking Up Just in Time is an illustration of the 12 steps of recovery and presenting them as a way for all of us to do tshuva, not just uh, addict. I didn't ask to be in this family, sibling relationships and how they shape adult behavior and dependencies. Well, there's a lot of that in, in Peanuts, sibling relationships. And, uh, and finally, that's not a fault. It's a character trait. Uh, by, uh, all by Rabbi Tversky with illustrations by uh, by Charles Schultz. So the fascinating thing about this, what Rabbi Tversky did, was that he didn't just get permission to use the comic strips to make his point, which is what uh, Reverend Short did in his best-selling book, The Gospel According to Peanuts. It's a book about Christianity using uh, uh, using Peanuts uh, comic strips. Rabbi Tversky is different. Because, look at this letter in source number 25 that he sent to Jeannie Schultz, uh, who was uh, 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 Charles Schultz's uh, wife, second wife. Uh, I think he sent this after, um, after he died, and there was a whole uh, mini controversy because there was a biography of Charles Schultz um, that was uh, published uh, several years ago um, called... Um, Schultz and Peanuts, and it was generally acclaimed, but 
Charles Schultz's wife and children hated it, and they said that he got a lot. The author got a lot of things wrong about his character, and in one of the web pages discussing it, Jeannie Schultz said, "I want to share with everybody two or three documents that shed light on who my husband was." And one of those documents was this letter sent her by Rabbi Tversky. Here's what he 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 writes. For many years, I was impressed with Sparky. Sparky was what everybody called Charles Schultz. I was impressed with his uncanny psychological insights. I have said that he may well be one of the most insightful people this country has ever produced. I used to display his cartoon strips under the heading of postgraduate education for psychiatric trainees to read. I met with Sparky a number of times in long sessions. In other words, unlike the rest of us who just, just read, just read the stuff, uh, Rabbi Tversky, who was not that much younger than uh, Charles Schultz, met with him and discussed the, discussed the, 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 the comic strips with him. Sparky smiled and said to Rabbi Tversky, Abe, if I allowed myself to see everything that you see in my cartoons, it would, it would paralyze me. I wouldn't be able to draw. Note that he didn't say he could not see them, but rather he did not allow himself to, uh, to see them. And one time he, Charles Schultz, said to Rabbi Tversky, may I ask you a theological question? Why do bad things happen to good people? Ooh, that's a big one. That's, you know, the question that, uh, that has been asked of, of uh, anybody religious, you know, ever. So this is what Rabbi Tversky answered. First he said, no human being can really understand that. All we can say in response to that question is something you've already said. I did. I then showed him the strip, which we just saw. And Wina says, after his sandcastle is washed away, there's a lesson to be worn here somewhere, but I don't know what it is. Robert Tversky says, I'm a bit more than an amateur theologian, but I really don't know if I can improve much on that. Which is a clever way of presenting the approach that Robert Tversky didn't make up and said, Perke Avot, and Biadenu. We just don't know. We do not know the answer. In this world, we cannot know the answer ultimately the answer to why bad things happen to, to good people. But Robert Tversky didn't just lecture. He said, hey, you, Charles Schultz, you already wrote this in, in one of your cartoons. And it, it's, everybody else looks at it and says, oh, yeah, another depressing thing, uh, another bleak thing uh, in Peanuts. And Robert Tversky looked at it and said, wow, that's just like a classic answer to Tzadik Varalo, bad things happening to, uh, uh, to good people. In... Uh, in source number number twenty six, we we need to uh, to wrap this up. Rabbi Tversky wrote an essay. So that that was a letter that Rabbi Tversky wrote to uh, Schultz's widow. He wrote an essay about uh, Charles Schultz not long uh, after he died. It was called "Even Wiser Than Most Because You Didn't Think You Were Wise," and he goes through some of the. So just mention a little bit. You could read the rest on your own. What is the magic charm of these cartoons that has captivated us? I suggest it's because these delightful characters remind us of ourselves or of others we know. They show us a variety of human traits, some of which are, are our own in a palatable vehicle. He doesn't say it in this, in this uh, letter, but in the introduction to uh, uh, his first, uh, in, in introduction to one of his Peanuts books, uh, Robert Tversky says that he once was able to get through to an addict just by showing him a, a, a Peanuts cartoon that related to the point that Robert Tversky was trying to make, and finally the guy got it. As opposed to, you are, pro are problematic because of this. Let's, let's try to understand why Lucy is problematic. Let's try to understand why Charlie Brown is, uh, is problematic. Skipping now uh, to the last source, source number 27. 
Rabbi Aaron Katz. He's actually a, a, a lawyer from, from, from Chicago who now lives in, in Israel. He's written several articles for, uh, for Tablet. Uh, he has Smicha from YU. Uh, in 2013, Rabbi Tversk was a featured speaker at Jewish Recovery Center retreat in Shabbaton. They asked him why he's wearing a Snoopy tie. Rabbi Tversk answered he was not aware of any American psychologist who had the intuitive psychological knowledge that Charles Schultz had. In other words, as opposed to anybody can say, oh, let, let me illustrate my points by using Harry Potter or using uh, Peanuts. But to be able to get the insights from the comic strips themselves, that that's very impressive. Or even, as we saw in a, a little bit on the first page or two of the Harry Potter sheet, insights from insights into, into Midod and Musser from the Harry Potter books that's more impressive than saying, oh, Harry Potter has magic? Oh, there's magic in Jewish tradition also. Rabbi Tversky um, not, didn't only use Charles Schultz's cartoons to make his points, but he argued that Charles Schultz was incredibly insightful, which is a point that I have not seen anybody else make, including the dozens of people writing essays uh, in, the, uh, in the books that, that I mentioned. And uh, Rabbi Nussan Sherman, the editor of, uh, of Art Scroll, um, said uh, uh, Charlie Brown is one of the greatest thinkers of modern times and it took Rabbi Tversky to bring his profundity to public knowledge. Okay, perhaps a bit of, uh, of an exaggeration but Rabbi Tversky clearly, clearly has felt strongly uh, about this. I thought it's just so interesting that somebody who, Rabbi, who in his own life, Rabbi Tversky, has been able to bridge between the different worlds for him, it was like he he looks at the comic strip and he sees something more than the, than the rest of us do. He sees psychiatry and addiction from recovery and Hasidut and Muster, and he sees it all uh, uh, in there. Anyway, our uh, our time is up. Uh, thanks for uh, for joining me. And uh, like I said at the beginning of of the session, uh, next week. Um, I will continue with um, with another mini series, um, which is for those of you who are not here at the very beginning. Religion and culture. Uh, the next five weeks, uh, starting starting uh, same same time slot, starting one week from uh, from now, and a bunch of different sources in uh, in each uh, in each uh, session. Um, I. I want to thank everybody for uh, for joining me, and uh, and wish everybody a good rest of Hanukkah. There's not a lot left, but uh, uh, thank you uh, thank you for joining me. And uh, I will now end the recording and uh, and stay for uh, for questions. Uh, just a second. Okay.